from the corner of 16th and Peachtree Street, right next to the High Museum of Art in Midtown Atlanta, welcome to the First Presbyterian Church. I'm Senior Pastor Tony Sundermeyer, and I want to thank you for tuning in to today's broadcast. And I would invite you now to join us in the worship of God. Please join me in our responsive call to worship. God is our refuge and strength, always ready to help in times of trouble. So we will not fear, even if earthquakes come and the mountains crumble into the sea. The oceans roar and foam, the mountains tremble as the waters surge. Even so, the Lord Almighty is here among us. He, God of Israel, is our fortress. The Lord Almighty is here among us. Let us worship God. And now, uh, please turn to the Gospel of Luke, chapter 9, verses 57 through 62, which is found on page 66 of your Pew Bible. As they were going along the road, someone said to him, I will follow you wherever you go. And Jesus said to him, foxes have holes, and birds of the air have nests, but the Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head. To another he said, follow me. But he said, Lord, first let me go and bury my father. But Jesus said to him, let the dead bury their own dead. But as for you, go and proclaim the kingdom of God. Another said, I will follow you, Lord, but let me first say farewell to those at my home. Jesus said to him, no one who puts a hand to the plow and looks back is fit for the kingdom of God. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let it be, O Lord, let it be in us that we would be open to what you'd have us know of you and know of ourselves and know of this world so that we may be more faithful even to be more like your Son, Jesus the Christ. It's in his name that we pray. Amen. Well, today we embark on our second installment on a brief three-week series on Christian discipleship. I've flat-out stolen a book title from Dr. Seuss, Oh, the Places You'll Go. Last week we kicked off this series by thinking about this idea, Oh, the Places You Go, under the umbrella of Christian discipleship. When we say we want to follow Jesus in the world, when we say we want to be a Christian, the places that we go, the places that we follow Jesus into may not have been the ones we've expected. The places we go, like that road to Jerusalem, oftentimes leads toward the suffering, leads toward the brokenhearted, leads to the marginalized and the oppressed. We sort of took a 30,000-foot view of Luke 9, 57 to 62 last week, and I said last week that we would now get into the weeds of this text. There are three encounters that Jesus has with would-be disciples in this particular narrative, and we're going to take the first one today and then look at the next two on the 24th. As they were going along the road, someone said to Jesus, I will follow you wherever you go. And Jesus said to him, foxes have holes and birds of the air have nests, but the Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head. 
With these verses, I'd like to ask two discreet questions. First, I'd like to know what it costs us if we read this text literally. What does it cost us if we read this text literally? And second, I want to know what this text costs us if we read it spiritually. What does it cost us if we read this text literally? And what does it cost us to read this text spiritually? So the first, what is the cost to our faith? What is the cost to the Christian life? What is the cost to our witness if we are to read this text literally? When this would-be disciple declares his loyalty and willingness to follow Jesus, Jesus has a very specific response. He says this, foxes have holes and birds of the air have nests, but the Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head. Literally, Jesus is saying, I don't have a home. I don't have a home. Foxes have a home. Birds have a home. The Son of Man, me? I don't have a home. Now, we do know from the gospel writers uh, early on in some of their narratives, they talk about how Jesus, quote, made his home in Capernaum. But we also talked about how the gospels sort of pivot uh, at some point in each of their telling away from sort of the general ministry of Jesus to the crowds and the individuals that come and meet him. And now it pivots toward this very specific focus, something that has to take place in Jerusalem. Uh, the text we read uh, in reference last week from the beginning of Luke 9 talked about how Jesus set his face toward Jerusalem. And so maybe at one time Jesus did have a physical, literal home, but now as he's making his way toward Jerusalem, now in this time, in this long obedience in the direction of God's will, he has no place to lay his head. One of my college roommates has become an author and a leader in what is known as the new monastic movement. It takes the monastic model of the Christian life, a, a common purse, a common housing, common ministries, and common rules, and instead of locating these communities like they once were located in, in sort of forests or in wilderness or in deserts or in caves, these uh, new monastic communities are locating themselves right in urban centers. They're, they're setting up their community life right where people are living some of the hardest lives. And in Shane's case, and with his community called The Simple Way, they, they settled on North Philadelphia, one of the toughest neighborhoods in that city, a neighborhood called Kensington and Allegheny. Well, back in May of 2012, the mayor of Philadelphia issued a citywide ordinance against feeding people outside. It was now legal to feed somebody outside. As part of that ordinance, he also made it illegal to sleep outside. To feed somebody outside and to sleep outside. Basically, it had become illegal to be homeless, and it had become illegal to meet people who were hungry with food in a public way. So this is what Shane and his community decided to do in the shadow of this ordinance. In his own words, about a hundred of us gathered in Love Park with homeless friends. This particular park in the center of the city is where a lot of homeless men and women sleep. They gathered and he said, we worshiped and sang and prayed. Then we served communion, which was, according to the mayor's ordinance, illegal. 
But with clergy and city officials there supporting us, and with police and the media surrounding us, we celebrated the sacrament anyway. Most of the police sat back and watched, not daring to arrest anyone. Some participated in communion. And then we, we continued the breaking of the bread by bringing in some pizza for everybody. It was a love feast. And then we slept overnight in the park with our homeless friends. We did that week after week after week with the police watching over us and the media standing by. And then one night after worship, as we slept under the love art installment in the park, the police circled and arrested all of us. So following their arrest, they get brought into court, the whole lot of them, and, and Shane, my friend, was wearing a black t-shirt, and it had uh, just a simple phrase on the front in big, white, bold letters. It said, Jesus was homeless. Jesus was homeless. The judge remarked that he didn't know that Jesus was homeless. He said, I, I must have missed that day in Sunday school as I was growing up. And so Shane pulled a Bible out of his back pocket and he read from Luke 9, foxes have holes and birds of the air have nests, but the Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head. After the judge heard the case, he pondered the constitutionality of the mayor's ordinance and he promptly ruled that the group was not guilty on every charge. But before he'd let Shane and, and his friend, his community, leave the, leave the courtroom, he said, I need to have one of those shirts and Shane mailed it to him the next day. Jesus was homeless. I mean, let that sink in for just a second. Jesus was homeless. And as you let that sink in, please understand there is no glamour in that statement. For most people, sleeping on the streets has no allure or charm Having to stay in a shelter or under a bridge is not what little boys and little girls dream of doing someday. Jesus was homeless. The weight of that statement pokes and prods our hearts. It asks us some questions. Did Jesus know what it was like to be dependent on the hospitality of others? Did Jesus know what it was like to be judged or looked down upon, marginalized or treated as less than because he didn't have a place to lay down his head? And if Jesus has stood in the shoes of the homeless, if he knows that experience firsthand, then for those of us who bear his name, should we not stand there with him? Here at First Presbyterian Church of Atlanta, we have made a clear choice to do just that uh, for decades. And we haven't always gotten it right. But for decades, we as a church have sought to stand with Jesus as Jesus stands with the homeless and vulnerable and poor. Our social work ministries, our women's transition center, our, our participation in the Atlanta continuum of care demonstrate our ongoing commitment to this work for budget year 2017, we committed over $600,000 just this year, $600,000 as an investment in staff and ministries to support the homeless and the poor and the vulnerable. 
I mean, if you take just a broader step, just take one step back and you take community ministries and you think about global mission and you think about our care ministries, some of the ministries that we enact here and through and in this place as a congregation, as the body of Christ, when you think about the ways in which these ministries seek to meet Jesus in disguise, when you add all of that up, when you add that investment up, it's over $1.1 million just this year to meet Jesus in disguise. And that doesn't count the quarter of a million dollars of in-kind gifts that we give to Child Spring in an international, a nonprofit that uses our space to bring children from the developing world here to the States for life-saving and life-changing surgeries. It doesn't count the space that we lend to the Samaritan Counseling Center, which has made it their mission to provide excellent counseling no matter one's economic status, that everyone has access to that counseling. As, as part of our long-range strategic plan, we've set a goal to help find permanent, affordable housing for 200 individuals over the course of seven years. 200 people over the course of the next seven years. And since the launch of our long-range strategic plan in January, our community ministries team is ahead of the curve. We've helped 46 people just in this calendar year, 46 find secure, safe, and affordable housing. Uh, like the married couple with two young boys, ages four and five, who came to community ministry seeking assistance. They were homeless and unemployed. And through our partnership with the Salvation Army, we're able to get them into a family shelter. The, this family, though, continued to work with our folks at community ministries. They looked to us for assistance with birth certificates for all of them and for ID cards for the parents and transportation uh, so that they could go to job interviews. Additionally, community ministries work collaboratively with the case manager at the Salvation Army where they were staying to assist the family through this transitional time. And I'm so excited to share this story today with you because these, uh, this family, that's these two boys, they're, they're now in school, pre-K and kindergarten. And both parents are employed with full-time permanent positions and they just signed their first lease in three years. Or how about Diane? We met Diane through our work in the Women's Transition Center. Diane is diagnosed uh, with a mental health disorder and she was not in compliance with her medicine. Because of that, she made a series of bad choices and decisions that led to her homelessness. Once she was accepted into our program at the Women's Transition Center, Teresha Anthony, our full-time social worker, assisted her in scheduling appointments so she could get the kind of counseling and psychiatric care, including counseling services here at Samaritan. After being stabilized on medication and, and meeting with her therapist at Samaritan, Diane was ready to begin job searching. And so Teresa referred Diane to a, a mainframe job readiness program where she gained valuable skills and was offered a full-time job at a local call center. She stayed in the transition center for eight months and she saved over $6,500 and now is in her own one-bedroom apartment. What is the cost when we read this scripture literally? What's the cost? The cost is friendship with the poor and the disenfranchised. The cost is advocacy for the least of these. The cost is time and friends, make no mistake, the cost is money. So we might stand with Jesus as we stand with the homeless and vulnerable of our city. 
I want to be very clear on this point. As we send out pledge requests and as we talk about giving now and into 2018, your generosity only expands these ministries. That's what your generosity does. So give generously and continue to give generously. I spent some time thinking about this first question, what does it cost us to take this text literally? Now I want to shift gears and head toward the finish line of this sermon and to think about if we were to read this text spiritually, metaphorically, mystically, what would it cost us and our faith? What does it cost us to think upon these words that Jesus has no place to lay his head? You know, in the Hebrew Bible, there are some texts that shine uh, some light on this particular saying, this turn of phrase. Uh, the psalmist in particular has uh, often, oftentimes rather, uses this image of laying down one's head to mean something. It means something when the psalmist says that you allow me, O Lord, to lay down my head. The, the, the most famous of these is Psalm 23. Many of you have memorized this psalm as children. The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. He makes me lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside still waters. He restores my soul. Or from Psalm 8, I will both lie down and sleep in peace. For you alone, O Lord, make me lie down in safety. And it's not just from the psalmist. It's also from the prophets as well, from Hosea. Listen to these words. I will make for you a covenant on that day with the wild animals, the birds of the air, and the creeping things of the ground. And I will abolish the bow, the sword, and war from the land. And I will make you lie down in safety. From the prophet Isaiah, a very familiar text during the season of Advent. The wolf shall live with the lamb. The leopard shall lie down with the kid. The calf and the lion and the fatling together, and a little child shall lead them. The cow and the bear shall graze, their young shall lie down together, and the lion shall eat straw like the ox. You see, in the Hebrew Bible, the Bible that Jesus read, this phrase, to lie down or to lay one's head down, correlates to a sense of being safely at rest. Being safely at rest. So you go back to Luke 9, and Jesus says that he has no place to lay his head. And what he is saying in this mystical, spiritual sense is that this road that he walks on has very little rest. Has very little rest. I know many of you have heard of attorney Brian Stevenson, whether through his uh, global phenomenal uh, TED Talk that he gave a couple years ago, or his book, Just Mercy, a story of justice and redemption, or his work with his own organization that he started a few decades ago, the Equal Justice Initiative, which among many things has won major legal challenges, eliminating excessive and unfair sentencing, uh, exonerating innocent death row prisoners, about 115 of those in two decades, confronting abuse of the incarcerated and the mentally ill, and aiding children prosecuted as adults. In fact, he's argued several cases in front of the Supreme Court. Most notably, he argued in front of the Supreme Court that sentencing a child at age 13 or 14 or 15 years old, sentencing them to life without parole was simply unconstitutional. The Supreme Court agreed with him and made that age now no one under 17 can be given that sentence. In both his TED Talk and in his book, he, he tells this story about a time he had the chance to meet Rosa Parks. Uh, 
he met her through a mutual friend named Ms. Carr. And in his own words, he writes of this encounter. He said, Rosa Parks turned to me sweetly and asked, now, Brian, tell me who you are and what you're doing. I looked at Ms. Carr to see if I had permission to speak to Ms. Parks. And she smiled and nodded at me. So I gave Ms. Rosa Parks my rap. Oh, yes, ma'am. Well, I, I have a law project called the Equal Justice Initiative, and we're trying to help people on death row. We're trying to stop the death penalty, actually. We're, we're trying to do something about prison conditions and excessive punishment. We want to free people who've been wrongly convicted. We want to end unfair sentences in criminal cases and stop racial bias in criminal justice. Ms. Parks leaned back, smiling. Ooh, honey. All that's going to make you tired, tired, tired. Everyone laughed. I looked down a little embarrassed. Then Miss Carr leaned forward and put her finger in my face and talked to me just like my grandmother used to talk to me. She said, Brian, that's why you have to be brave, brave, brave. Friends, the road to follow Jesus will make you tired. I don't know what you've heard about the gospel of Jesus Christ. I don't know what you've heard about this road, but let me tell you, it will make you tired. There's no doubt about it. Figuring out how to forgive someone who has wronged you will make you tired. Working and praying to finally come to terms with God's unconditional grace and love in your life no matter how much guilt or how much pain you bear, to work out your own salvation in light of this good news, that will make you tired. Seeking reconciliation and restoration of a broken relationship will make you tired. Praying for that person who refuses to get the help they need will make you tired. Giving all you are to a loved one or a friend with a terminal diagnosis or mental illness or addiction will make you tired. Choosing love instead of revenge and retribution will make you tired. Going the extra mile will make you tired. Keeping your promises or keeping your faith, even in times that are the most difficult to do so, or even when it's expedient not to, doing that will make you tired. Befriending and walking with the poor and the vulnerable will make you tired. Fighting for justice and equality will make you tired. The cost, friends, of being a Christian will make you tired. And so we have to be brave, brave, brave. The bravery of the Christian is measured not in our accomplishments. It is not measured in our spiritual successes but measured rather by our sheer willingness to follow Jesus on this restless road, knowing that even as we follow him, and here is the paradox of our faith, even though this road is tiring, he will give us the rest. He will give us the grace. He will give us the courage we need to keep on keeping on. Oh, the places you'll go. Foxes have holes and the birds of the air have nests, but the Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head. Be brave and follow him. Amen.
The road can make you tired, and that's why we have to be brave, so brave, so brave, to keep courage, to keep faith, to keep trusting that God will give us exactly what we need to continue to follow Jesus along the way. And now, friends, as we go, may Christ's peace accompany us, this peace that surpasses all understanding. May it guard our hearts and our minds. May it live inside of us this day and every day of our life. Amen.